You can only sing that song because of Jesus, right? Baritones love that song. Get some resonance to it. I'm going to ask you to go in your Bibles, if you would, to Romans, book of Romans chapter 14. We're going to pick up where we left off at last week. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, um, there's free copies in the back of the auditorium today when you leave. Pick one up there on that brown table back there. Maybe you have it on your phone or you have a hard copy. There's some in the pews around you in the seats. You can follow along that way, but it'll also be up on the screens. And the reason the center screen is up is because we're going to have a baptism today. We're looking forward to celebrating that. We'll, we'll do that in just a few minutes. So I'd love to pray with you before we get into this, but I just want to give you the heads up. Um, last week I told you what we were looking at was uh, fairly didactic, and I said it was just full of a lot of information. I hope if you were here this last week, or maybe you were able to watch online, or maybe our online audience, you were part of that, we um, learned about the crowns that are waiting for us. We learned about the rewards that are waiting for us when we step into eternity. And, and I hope that brought courage to your heart this week to think that if every believer is going to receive a crown, a believer's crown, and it should give you a great deal of courage. Well, where last week was fairly didactic, you're going to think this week's fairly philosophical, and Paul's really going to wax eloquent. And I think you're going to come away from this today saying, wow, that guy is scary smart. The way that he weaves this together, and you'll especially see it at the end, maybe leaves you with a sense of God really was at work. Because there's no way man could think these things. It had to be the Spirit of God working through someone like Paul who's incredibly intelligent and pulls all the pieces together. Knowing those things and what we're about to engage with, I'm going to ask you to pray with me. Father, we come before this passage which could cause other people to want to just read right on by it. And I, I can't think of a worse thing than us just blowing by your word. You want us to teach the full counsel. Everything that you've shown us, you've shown us for a reason, and there's things that we need to understand, but sometimes it, it's such a mystery, and we willingly would admit that, and, and I know there's individuals, Father, who might not come often enough that the Bible even seems to make sense to them. I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit right now that you would illuminate our minds no matter where we're at to give us a capacity to really see how this applies to our life how these ancient words will speak true in 2019. God, I ask that you would use what you moved Paul to write down for the sake of your church, that we would understand better who we are before you. And we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start off where we left off at, in Romans chapter 14, verse 13. You'll see it on the screen as well. Therefore, let us not judge, and you notice I put in brackets the word crino. I'll explain that in a minute. Let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine, there's the word crino again, let us determine this not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Therefore, based on what we learned last week, because God is the one who's on the throne, God is the one who's giving out the crowns, God is the one who has the rewards for those who are faithful and believe in Him, because we stand before His judgment seat, therefore, we must not be judging others because God carries out the judgment. So I told you he uses this word crino, and you've seen it appear twice in there. And we talked about this two weeks ago when we started chapter 14. This particular word crino is in your notes this morning, and there's three Greek words in there, but you'll also see it on the screen. And this definition, we said, it has this thought of condemning someone behind it. 
But it also has dual meaning. It's not just condemning, but it's also determining something. And so it's a match for the words that Jesus used. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, Jesus said very simply, do not judge. Do not crino. In that story, you might remember Jesus was talking about, don't you dare do eye surgery on someone else. If you've got a log in your eye, don't be trying to dissect someone else's speck in their eye. Deal with your own issue first. What's the exact same word, crino, here? And Paul's saying, when we do that, if we're believers in Jesus and we do that, he writes, something happens internally in the church. There's this attitude of self-righteousness that creeps up, and it's really ugly, and it wreaks havoc. And he says, here's what happens. Those who are weak in Christ, they be, they're very judgmental individuals. They're, they're legalists. And the weak ones in Christ who are legalists and think everybody needs to behave by a set of rules of do's and don'ts, those individuals begin judging. They crino people. And those who are being judged, those who are on the other side that know what freedom in Christ is, they're, they're strong in their faith, Paul writes. Those individuals understand their freedom and they begin to look with disdain upon those who are judging them. And it creates so much friction that those judgments have become a major cause of disrespect and disunity and disharmony for millennia in the church. And it flies in the face of what we talked about two weeks ago when we said Jesus on his deathbed was talking to the Father and he's saying in the garden on the night that he's arrested, Father, I pray this one thing, that they would be one as you and I are one, and we find disunity comes out of this judgment issue. So Paul uses the present tense of the word anymore here. When he says, don't do that anymore, in other words, stop it, because they're apparently doing it. And Jesus warned us that those actions are really going to hurt. So he says, instead, you've got to crino, you've got to determine You've got to use Crino the good way. You've got to make a judgment about yourself not to put a stumbling block in someone else's way. Now, the phrase stumbling block is pretty powerful because in the Greek world, in the ancient world, they're thinking of an animal trap. They're thinking of the bait plate inside the animal trap. If you've got a mouse trap you've ever set in your home or maybe you've seen an animal live trap used, it's the bait plate in the center where they place the food and that stumbling block is the thing that the prey trips on, and it causes the mechanism to trip, and that individual is destroyed. And Paul says, don't be doing that. Don't be trapping someone. Well, how does that happen? Well, there's several ways, actually. Maybe someone has judged you. Maybe you've been in church throughout the course of your life at some point, and someone judged you, and you were tripped up by that. It was so severe that it caused you to stumble on your path, on your spiritual walk. Or maybe as a less mature person, you judge someone else and you cause them to stumble. I, that's part of what he's talking about, but that's not the full thing that I think he's talking about. We find actually a similar warning in the book of Corinthians. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 8, 9. He says, take care lest this liberty. Now he's talking to the strong believers. He's talking to those who understand freedom in Christ and he says, this liberty of yours, take care of it, lest somehow it becomes a stumbling block to the weak. So now we're talking about people who understand freedom in Christ, they're mature in Christ, and yet they can be setting a trap. How does that happen? I'll give you an example from my own life and things that I've seen take place. I'll phrase it this way. In the New Testament, you won't find any prohibitions against the use of alcohol by believers in Christ. 
Scripture will tell you that you have to be careful and don't be drunk with it and don't be overwhelmed with it, but it doesn't say don't drink. In my own world, I observed that, and there, there was destruction in my own world, and as a young man, I watched many of my family members who abused alcohol to such a degree, some of them became alcoholics. They were out of control of their life. And so as a young man, I determined, I'm not going to go there. I don't want to be part of that. Maybe that would be a reality in my life. Maybe I wouldn't be able to control it also because it goes back generations in my family. So I decided I'm not going to be part of that. Well, I got to Bible college and I met my wife, Lori, and she also had made that determination in her life because she had seen similar destruction in her world. So as a couple, we decided we weren't going to participate in that. Well, my dad came to Christ and he made a decision for Jesus and he had really struggled with alcohol. So as a, a couple, as a young couple, we decided we're just not going to participate in that because we don't want to be a stumbling block to those who are in our family that might be really fighting against the use of alcohol. However, Scripture doesn't prohibit it. It doesn't say you can't do that, but I didn't want to be part of causing someone to stumble. So we set up a boundary in our life. Now, that would be a mistake for me to transfer that over to someone else and say, well, because it's good for me, it's also good for you. You shouldn't do that as well. That would be legalism. It's going to, in your life, change from person to person that you know, from situation to situation. But the principle never changes. Paul's making the case that a really strong believer in Christ is going to determine in their life to be sensitive no matter what the situation is. So he gives us an example in verse 14. He says this, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Now, Paul's being really strong here, very emphatic. He says, I have no doubts about this issue. And he's saying, it's not my personal bias. I'm convinced in Jesus. I'm absolutely certain of this. And he says, you will be too if you take absolutely certain what Jesus did on the cross for you. You're going to come to the same conclusion. Nothing is intrinsically unclean in and of itself if we're talking about non-moral issues. Look with me on the screens. 1 Timothy 4.4. Everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. But Paul's aware there's an issue. There's a propensity for a real struggle in the church. He's saying, even though nothing is unclean, no thing is unclean in itself, if someone regards it as unclean for that person, then to him who thinks it, the situation is completely different. In other words, the person's conscience has arrived at a point where they cannot partake of that action without seeing it as wrong, and that one should never do anything that they're convinced is wrong. Now, this doesn't mean, I want you to get this really clear in your mind, this doesn't mean that thinking something so makes it so. That doesn't mean, well, I think such and such is not a sin, so it's not a sin. That's not what he's talking about here. You could apply that logic to all sorts of immoral behavior, and some really creepy things have been applied to that line of reasoning. That's not what he's talking about here. That's absolutely not what he's writing about. Sin is a matter of God declaring what sin is. It is not a matter of personal opinion. You good with that, New Hope? It, it, it's, let's say it this way. There are some things that are black and white, right? And Scripture is very clear. And, and when God says something is sin, it's sin regardless of what society says. But there are other matters, Paul's writing. Non-eternal matters. Non-moral issues which there is legitimate differences over. 
So he has in mind the taboos of the legalist, which are secondary issues. In my house this last week, Lori and I were just kind of thinking back over some of the things in our own life as children and as teenagers that we witnessed that legalists tried to put upon us, things that we were walking through as kids trying to figure out. And one of the things that she threw up, she said that she remembered was a time in her life when you couldn't go outside of the house on Sundays. Some of you are like, what? Well, except for going to church, that was a rule in the 1960s in some households, you couldn't go outside of the house. And Lori's house happened to have that rule, and so she said she remembers some neighbors coming to her house and knocking on the door and saying, hey, can you come out and play softball with us? And having to say, I'm sorry, we don't do that on Sunday. And she said, it was so embarrassing. Like, how do you explain that to your neighbor? Or what about the rules about the lengths of skirts? Or, or whether or not you should have a certain length of hair? I heard that one a lot in Bible college. Or, or what about all the rules that came to, you can't go to movies? Or, or what about piercings? Or the kind of music you listen to? Or one that really bothered me as a kid? You can't only eat fish on Fridays. Like, What? I remember saying to my mom, what is the deal? We only get fish on Fridays in our hot lunch at school. And she said, well, you know, it's kind of a Catholic thing. It carried over into the schools. And I said, who made those rules up? Who gets to define those things? And Paul's saying, in such a case like that, it's upon the strong believer to be looking for ways to build up those who are weak believers and being really careful not to say and not to do anything that could cause them to be spiritually hurt. Now the mature believer is naturally gonna recoil and say, what, what about me? What about my rights? What about my liberty? Well, Paul's saying you do have liberty, absolutely you have it, but you gotta save it for the right timing. You gotta save it for when it's not hurting someone. Paul uses himself as an example multiple times, so we'll use him as an example. As a Pharisee, he's trained under the house of Gamaliel, one of the highest teachers in the land. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees, he says. And so he's been extremely careful all his life about the things that he could eat, the things that he could put in his body. He wouldn't dare touch a piece of ham because it was against the Jewish rules. But as a believer in Jesus, he came to understand liberty with absolute clarity. And he knew what Jesus had said to Peter. Watch with me on the screen, Acts 10, 15. God's speaking to Peter, and he said, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy, Peter. And he's talking about people, and he's talking about wine, and he's talking about days, and he's talking about food. If God's declared it holy, it's holy, and Paul understands that. And then to amplify it, Jesus said this, Mark 7, 15, there is nothing outside the man which going into him can defile him. Or 1 Timothy 4, 3 and 4, 4, you saw this earlier. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. So the strong believer, the mature believer, that one is correct. You are at liberty to enjoy anything that God created if it's not immoral, if it's not sinful. And the weak are wrong in the sense of not having a mature understanding and become hypersensitive and they become legalist. But Paul says, here's where it diverges. To that one who thinks anything to be unclean, it's unclean. Why? Because they're mentally convinced that it is and they've got conviction. 
I don't think this is much of a stretch to say this for in this auditorium with the hundreds gathered here and those watching online, this is going to be true of every believer. In every Christian, we have some degree of a weak spot on these issues. Some sort of issue in our conscience based on our upbringing or based upon our culture. There's a high probability today that you have boundaries in your life on non-moral issues, these lines that you have drawn that you will not cross, but somebody in your social circle will freely cross it. And you wonder, why am I not comfortable with that? Why can't I be as free as that person? And for those reasons, there are certain things that we will not feel comfortable doing, even being near And as long as we feel the discomfort in it, Paul's saying about those things, you should just avoid it until God teaches you differently. Now, Paul, again, as an example, he doesn't claim to be free of defect. He doesn't say, I'm I'm, I'm completely sinless. He says, I actually have issues of things I don't want to do that I do do. And so he says this in Acts 24, 16. I, Paul's writing, I do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. Now, remember the major emphasis that's going on here in chapter 14. The major emphasis is how our words and how our actions affect other people. So he says in verse 15, For if because of food your brother is hurt and you could substitute food, you could insert whatever that issue is in your life. If because of alcohol, if because of tattoos, if because of the clothing you choose, whatever the thing is you think might be a stumbling block, because of... Food, Paul says in his world, if because of food your brothers hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. And now we see he's really amping it up. This is becoming a really big issue here. This isn't just about who's eating vegetables and who's not eating vegetables. It looked like in the beginning of the chapter, he's talking about actually doing destruction to somebody. So he's going to drill down now and he's going to put some flesh on this example And he states it realistically. He says, on account of food? You're going to do that kind of damage? Martin Luther, when he was reading this, said, because of your belly, are you going to bring destruction upon a fellow believer? On account of something as trivial as food? So this is not abstract at all. This is real in his world. He's saying you're actually grieving family members in the body of Christ. So he uses the phrase, You're hurting them. It's the word lupeo, and it's the second Greek word in your notes this morning. And that one means to put somebody in distress. You know where that's used? It's used in the book of Ephesians. When we're told that we can grieve the Holy Spirit, when we cause the Holy Spirit distress, when does that happen? When we sin. And he says, you could do that exact same thing to a brother or sister in Christ. Careless use of your liberty. If you're a mature believer in Christ, that kind of careless use can hurt other believers. And he says, if you're doing that, you're not walking according to love. Do not destroy them. Uh, Interestingly, he uses the word apolomai there. It's not in your notes. But apolomai, destroy, means utter destruction. Doing spiritual damage to someone, serious damage that can hinder the growth of another person. And I don't think he's talking about destroy as in damnation to hell, because we're talking about believers to believers here, and a believer's not going to be damned to hell. They can't lose their salvation, right, New Hope? Can't lose that. Romans 8, we looked at this, Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not 
also with him graciously give us all things. Verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Everybody should be saying amen to that one. God is the one who saved you. You can't be damned to hell because of another's action. So he can't be talking about that. Here's what's going on. This kind of destroy, it means the loss of peace of your mind, the loss of joy, the loss of witness, even to the degree it actually paralyzes someone. They're so grieved. How do I know that? Would Jesus use this exact same phrase when he was talking to people about believers in the body of Christ? Look with me up on the screen, Matthew 18, 14. It is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Many people think that he's talking about children there and they're mistaken because he's got kids sitting on his lap, but he's talking about the believers who have gathered around him and he uses the exact same word, apollomai. It is not the will of your Father that one of these believers in me that they would be damaged, apollomai. The context of the setting makes it very clear. These are believers. How could they perish? They can't. God saves them. No one can condemn them if God's justified them. Dr. MacArthur spoke to this issue, and I wanted you to see his quote. He says, the context makes it clear. These little ones are believers. Jesus was not concerned about their loss of salvation, but about their loss of well-being, which although not an eternal loss, is an injury the Lord considers to be extremely grave. To despise one of those for whom Christ died is a great offense to God. So we want to ask ourselves, am I doing that? Could I be guilty of doing that to somebody whom I hang out with? I don't don't want to do that. So Paul writes in verse 16, Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. In other words, your rights, your liberty can't get a bad name. Don't go there. Don't forfeit your witness because it is possible that you could use your liberty in Christ to such a degree that you could create conflict within the church. What did we start talking about here two weeks ago? That there could be disunity to the degree that it could breach what Jesus had asked for. Remember the night that he was arrested in the garden and he's praying to the Father. He's making a deathbed prayer. Father, I pray that they would be one as you and I are one. But yet we found for millennia this friction within the church, and it gives the world reason to criticize those who have been claiming brotherly love. Let me give you an example here. Two weeks ago, we talked about how the Gentile believers coming into the church had come from very fresh situations. They're new to church. They don't know all the rules But what they do know is that people have been offering meat to Zeus and worshiping Zeus and bowing down before him, and then they're bringing that same meat into the church, and people are eating it at potluck dinners, and it's causing the new believers in Christ to recoil, saying, we can't eat that. That was just offered to an idol. We can't be part of that. So Paul has to address this issue, and he says, it's not the issue. Here's the issue, 1 Corinthians 10, 23. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. And he goes over to verse 31 and says, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. And here's the setting in the first century you got individuals who are being invited over to dinner to someone else's house. Believers mixing with non-believers, those who are fresh to Christ, 
Who are they hanging out with? Well, they're hanging out with the people that are part of their social circle, which happen to be, in this case, non-believers. And their non-believer friends who are still pagans in their behavior, they invite you over to dinner, and you might be a really strong believer by this point. You might be mature, and you understand you have freedom, and, and your host sets down a platter of meat on the table in front of you and says, isn't this great? Look at that platter of meat. We just offered it to Zeus two hours ago. It's fresh. Now, that might not bother you because you're mature and you understand freedom in Christ and it's just a chunk of meat to you. But what if you brought Joe with you and Joe's really struggling and he's new to Christ and he's weak and he's thinking, I can't do that. What do I do in this situation? I don't want to offend my host. Let's bring it forward to 2019. Let's say you work in an environment where your boss has had a very good first quarter and he wants to celebrate with the employees that are in your division. And so your boss says, hey, you know what? On Thursday night this week, I want you all to meet me at such and such bar. We're going to lift a toast and we're going to celebrate what's been happening in our business. We're going we're to have drinks together and I'm going to buy for everybody. But what if within your division, you've got a fellow believer in Christ who's just conquered alcohol? It's been an alcoholism issue for them. And they're really struggling and they don't know what to do. They're recoiling inside saying, I, I can't go there. And Paul's saying, in this setting, what you have to do as a believer who loves your brother in Christ, you've got to say, I, I, sorry, I've got to opt out. Whether it's the first century or it's 2019, he says, you've got to love that brother so much, you've got to be there for him. But then what happens? You offend your boss. You offend your host. It creates tension. Well, Paul helps us somewhat with the tension in verse 17. He says, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, watch this. For he who in this way, what way, Paul? For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God. For he who sets up that boundary line in their life and says, I love my brothers so much, I have liberty, but I'm going to withdraw, and I'm not going to do that. For he who does that, they're serving Jesus in that case, and they're acceptable to God and approved by men. Do you notice what he's doing here? He's, he's contrasting something so trivial as eating and drinking with something so permanent as righteousness and peace. And the, the church would say every time, righteousness and peace, that's always more valuable than exercising liberty. If believers are more interested in serving than in pleasing themselves, that's a powerful witness, both to the co-workers and to the unbelieving world and certainly to the church. And Jesus commanded this exact same kind of behavior. Look with me. He caused Paul to write this in Romans 10, 12, 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Devoted. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Those kind of attributes, church, those are incredibly attractive. You might even say, wow, that, that's fragrant, that people would love each other that way. People on the outside looking in, I, I'm here to ask you, where else are you going to find that kind of devotion to one another? If you don't find it in the church, you're certainly not going to find it in the friction of the world. It would cause people to say, that's a beautiful thing. And so Paul writes in verse 18, in this way, you're serving Jesus. It's acceptable to God and approved by men. Now, approved is really significant. 
because it's the word dokimos. And that was borrowed from the world of jewelry, in which a jeweler would sit down and examine a gem and try and determine between the rare stones which one was the best one to go into the particular necklace or the ring or the crown that they were making. Examining it so closely and so carefully, Paul says, that's the way people are looking at you. They're examining you as though you're under a magnifying glass to determine the true value of your behavior. So Paul makes the argument in verse 19. So then, verse 19, so then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. And here's your last Greek word for this morning. Okadome. And this is borrowed from the world of construction, from the world of architecture. What we're doing out on East Saginaw Highway right now, building the new church building. If you're new to New Hope, by the way, we're building a new building. <laughs> but this particular word, oh, sorry, it's not on the screen yet. Okadome, we'll, we'll pop that one up there for you. That particular word is borrowed from the world of architecture. And in a very concrete form, it actually means the building of a structure. But as it applies to people, figuratively, it's talking about edifying, about building someone up to the degree that you're encouraging them in their walk. And building up another believer is something every single one of us can do. This, this particular morning, I'm looking for an individual here at the church who I can identify for this particular reason. I won't name his name, but I'm watching for him because I'm deliberately wanting to encourage him. I was told earlier this week by an individual who had surgery, and I didn't even know he had surgery, that this particular individual I want to encourage, he showed up at the hospital six weeks ago and sat in the waiting room, the pre-op room, with this guy who was going to have neck surgery and determined to stay with him until they took him away and said to him, can I just pray with you? I just want to spend some time with you. That believer in Christ who's had that neck surgery said to me, you have no idea how much that encouraged me. Well, I want to find the one who did that, and I want to say to them, you know what you did for that one? The peace and comfort you brought to that one? That's the kind of building up we're talking about. It is the responsibility, and I put this in your notes, and I want you to see it on the screen. It is the responsibility of those of us who are at peace with God to pursue conduct in our life that promotes peace within the church. And so Paul ends it by stating the opposite, verse 20. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. That's his example. All things are indeed clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles. Well, who's the work of God? New Hope, we are. We're the work of God. How do I know that? Scripture says this, Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship. We've been created in Christ Jesus. You could say that about yourself. I am the work of God. Well, he says don't tear down the work of God. That means your fellow believer in Christ. But in the early church, there were many offenses, and many of them did relate to food. And for the Jewish Christians, they're coming in from being under the Mosaic law, and they're saying, we can't eat ham. What are you guys doing eating ham? And then you've got the, the new Gentile believers that are coming in saying, wait, that food was just offered to Zeus. And you've got this clash of cultures all within the body of Christ. And Paul's saying, get the big picture here, people. The big picture is these warnings relate to anything that can cause another one to be offended. For you, it might be your conversation. It might be your form of humor. It might be the way you dress. You, you have to examine yourself. This is hard stuff. You have to really what? 
watch yourself. But Paul's saying not for such trivial things should anybody destroy the work of God. And if you're hung up on him talking about drinking in that last verse, he's not prohibiting drinking. That's not what he's doing here. He's just saying the momentary pleasure of things like that, it's absolutely trivial compared to the spiritual welfare of a brother or sister in Christ. Now here's where it ends, and he shows himself scary smart. Watch how this goes. Verse 22. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith and whatever is not from faith is sin. And you're looking at it thinking, he must be scary smart because I don't understand that. It's like, what did he just say? Oh, this is why I don't want to read the Bible. Let's just break it down real quick. Emphatically, he's saying you, both mature and immature believers, all believers, some are weak and some are strong, and he makes the application really direct, and he says the faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. That's a great admonishment because he starts out with the simple thing, and the simple thing is this, keep it to yourself. Keep it between you and God. If you've got a conviction on a non-moral issue, don't use it to trip someone else up. Keep it between you and God, but then it gets deeper. Here's where the rubber really meets the road. What it actually means to put a stumbling block in someone's way. How could I do that? How could I actually entice someone to betray their own conscience? Very simple illustration. Just bear with me on this. Let's say that you're in a social circle, and within your social circle, you've got a friend who really hates all things Elvis. They, they don't like Elvis music, they don't like Elvis bobbleheads, they don't like Elvis paintings, and they especially don't like Elvis on velvet, all right? It's just a thing for them. And that one is a believer, and they've recently come to Christ and they've struggled with alcoholism in their past and so they don't want anything to do with alcohol anymore. But the social circle is a group and it's a pretty good sized group of people and the rest of the group loves Elvis and they come up with an idea and the idea is this, hey, up in Mount Pleasant four weeks from now, there's going to be an Elvis convention and there's an impersonator that's going to be there. And they're going to have Elvis artwork. And we heard that for every room that's rented, there's free drinks. Let's all go. They don't know about that one who's got that recoil within them, but you do. And, and that one's got that recoil reaction going, I don't know that I can do this. But the pressure from the group is so great, they feel like they've got to betray their conscience. And they're pressured to the degree that they feel like they have to go in order to still be part of the group. They don't want to be the only one left out. But all the time they're there and they agree to go, their skin is crawling. Not only because they've betrayed their personal taste, but it's going against their conscience. And now we get the big picture of why he wrote of what he wrote in verse 14. Look at verse 14 again. 
I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. And the uncleanliness doesn't reside in the item itself. It's in the conscience of that person. And the only thing that's making it wrong, that clean thing, would be if that one's not acting in faith, Paul said in verse 23. That is, they're not acting out of the contentment of their relationship with God. Look at verse 23 again. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. Check this. That one who gives in to go to the Elvis weekend, they're not finding their joy and their peace and their contentment in their relationship with God. They're finding it in their relationship with their social circle. I need, I need that. I need their approval. But if you're on the opposite side and we act out of the contentment with God, there's no overpowering desire to do something we feel is wrong. We're going to relax in God's sufficiency. So back the story up. We got a great idea. Elvis is going to be up in Mount Pleasant. Let's go to the casino four weeks from now. And that one could step back and say, I don't do that. I, I can't do that. It's not who I am. And I can't participate in that. What, what's going on? There's some resolve there because they've got a new identity. Paul's saying, don't lay a trap for somebody who's in that week of a position. Don't lay a bait plate out there for them and try and trap them into something you want to make them give into. If we feel pressure to give in, here's what we're saying, and this is really the crux of this. We're saying, I need this pleasure more than I need my relationship and my contentment with God. I need that thing. I will defile my own conscience because the approval of my social circle is so much more important. And Paul's saying that is not the kind of action that comes from faith. To desire something so much that our contentment is not in God, we're saying to God this. We're saying, God, you're not enough. I need that. Whatever that is. And instead, we're craving what we believe to be wrong. And Paul's saying, faith Real, pure, true faith, that's a reliance on God. Even when your social circle might be doing something different. It's a meaty stuff, isn't it? It's like, whoa, this guy is smart. But you're seeing the evidence of the Holy Spirit pouring through him. I'm going to pray for us right now, church. This is kind of a weird transition over to baptism. But hear me on this. This individual... Serena, who's about to step into the baptism tank, you're, you're going to watch someone who's putting their faith on display, and they're willing to say publicly, this is who I am. I know many of you recognize baptism that way. Gary's going to lead that, but I want to pray for those who have been baptized this weekend. Over the course of the three services, there's individuals who are willing to, not just in church, but say for the rest of the week, the rest of their life, this is who I am in Christ Jesus. I'm going to pray for you that way and for them. Would you join me? Father, we recognize that we've looked at some, um, some pretty deep material, and it's, it's more tempting to just blow past it, but we would have missed the richness of what you wanted us to see. So I pray that you would strengthen us in our walk this week. 
As we walk before you and before our social circle, the person who might have a cubicle next to us or might be in our neighborhood, that we would choose things that are pleasing to you and honorable to you and that we wouldn't betray our conscience, but that we would seek to find our contentment in you in all things. I pray for every one of the individuals throughout this weekend who have stepped into the baptism tank, that they're willing to put themselves on display publicly and say, I belong to Jesus. God, I ask not only that you would bless them, but that you would help their witness to be as strong a week from today, two weeks from today, as it is today in the service, that we would celebrate as we watch Serena step into the water. God, I know that brings you pleasure. Send us out with your comfort, with your joy, with your encouragement, with your admonishment, but also with true celebration. We ask for this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.